Tēnā my name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, the rollout of cameras on fishing vessels is finally seeing some progress, but a journalism student's chance encounter with a fisherman in Littleton suggests those cameras can't come soon enough, and the temporary ban on livestock exports is planned to become a conditional ban next month. With farmer sentiment at a low point, will the government take the easy road out of the live export issue? Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. As always, we're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We bring you the latest news and commentary every fortnight with a focus on the exploitation of animals. Animal Matters is also on Patreon. You can support the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters and making a monthly pledge. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. It's hard to believe that it was only three and a half weeks ago that the live export ship, Gulf Livestock One, went missing in the East China Sea. It was carrying nearly 6,000 cattle to China, all of which drowned when the ship capsized in a typhoon. 40 of the 43 crew are still missing. Only two have survived. An unlikely ally to the live export campaign has since emerged. I say unlikely because he once sat at the decision-making table with the political establishment, but he's an animal welfare heavyweight. Dr. John Hellstrom was Chief Veterinary Officer for the Ministry of Agriculture and Forestry back in the 80s and early 90s, and more recently the former Chair of the National Animal Welfare Advisory Committee. Dr. Hellstrom carries significant mana in the animal welfare space, and he's now made a number of statements outlining his opposition to the live export trade. I think in general the, the welfare management is very good right through to the point of arrival. My concern is what happens after they get there. And uh, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of our cattle in different countries around the world, and uh, I'd have to say none of them uh, have been in conditions as good as they would have been in back in New Zealand, and some of them have been in very poor conditions. He isn't saying anything that hasn't already been said before, but for someone with Dr Hellstrom's credentials to make such a statement is what those of us in this business would call a very big deal. The capsize and sinking of Gulf Livestock 1 and the subsequent attention it brought to the live export trade also caught the attention of The Detail, a daily podcast produced by RNZ and Newsroom. It's worth checking out for yourself. It takes a deep dive into the history of live export. It explains that the controversy around this trade isn't new. It's been going on for decades. Dr Hellstrom was interviewed for the detail as well, and he made one comment which really struck me. So why has this trade been allowed? Hellstrom goes back to the 1980s. I was Chief Veterinary Officer from 1986 to 1991, and that was the period of very rapid growth that was a consequence of the, uh, the Douglas reforms and the removal of agricultural subsidies. So it was a very tough time for sheep farmers, and uh, the live sheep trade offered an alternative market for some of their stock, and it certainly kept the prices up a little. That must have been a really difficult trade-off for you. Yes, and initially, of course, uh, we didn't have a lot of evidence, so we were saying we think this is going to be bad. The evidence from other countries doing it is that it's going to be bad, but there was very strong pressure uh, to uh, 
let industry get some income back out of the trade. It could be argued that we have more evidence now that animals suffer in the live export trade. But just as they did in the 80s with the removal of agriculture subsidies, farmers today are also facing new challenges, or at least perceived challenges. Agriculture lobby groups are constantly talking about rock-bottom confidence in the sector and feeling attacked by the government over new regulations to curb climate emissions and freshwater degradation. Whether being attacked by the government is a fair statement is up for debate, but that is the perceived experience for many farmers right now. Could this mean that a Labour government, yet again, is going to put off a total ban in favour of a partial ban or tighter regulation? More on this point later. The Detail also spoke to Farah Hancock, a reporter with Newsroom who covers the environment, biodiversity and science. She interviewed one farmer, Brett Sanger, who recently sold some of his cattle for live export. Since learning about the Gulf Livestock 1 tragedy, he's come to completely regret his decision. Brett told Farah the following. You start seeing some fairly appalling images of what's happened on other ships and on reflection you think, do I really want to be doing this? Brett took a lot of convincing to speak with a journalist and initially wanted to remain anonymous for fear of backlash. Many farmers feel this way and I'd hazard a guess many more would speak out if they felt like they wouldn't be ostracised from the farming community. Ultimately, Brett decided he wanted to be named in Newsroom's story and carpi to him. A couple of weeks ago, MPI announced they were ordering a review into what happened with Gulf Livestock 1, as well as a review of the scrutiny and application process that MPI conducts before granting an animal welfare export certificate. The review, which is being conducted by Michael Heron QC, is expected to be completed by late October, during which time the temporary ban on livestock exports would remain in place. Agriculture lobbyists were not happy, and they made it known. Thousands of cows are still currently in quarantine awaiting export, and the agriculture sector has claimed that what was a so-called maritime disaster has created too much uncertainty for their industry. Very quietly last week, the government decided that the temporary ban would remain in place until October 23, by which point the Heron review should be completed. Regardless, from October 23, the rules would be relaxed and a conditional ban would be put in place, meaning exports of livestock can commence subject to the Director General of MPI's approval. A conditional ban on the export of livestock has been Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor's preference for some time. He said as much when he launched his first review into the live export trade. That started last year and still hasn't been completed. This is very preemptive and signals to us that the Labour government still intends to continue with the live export trade, despite the risks that are so overwhelmingly obvious. This goes back to my point earlier. With an election looming, the Labour Party are desperately trying to curb this perception of being anti-farmer, and the opposition are capitalising on this. A poor choice of words on Jacinda Ardern's part in last week's leaders' debate on TV1 turned into a narrative in the news cycle for most of last week that Ardern thinks that the world of farming is in the past. That's not what she said, by the way. Ardern was talking about the idea that farmers are against becoming more sustainable, to which she responded, that feels like the view of the world that has passed. Regardless, 
it was taken out of context and has caused her a lot of headaches since. So is this going back to the late 80s all over again, as Hellstrom illustrated? Will Labour try to appease the vocal farming lobby, who they say are under attack from the current government? Will they take the easy way out and a softer approach by allowing live export to continue on a conditional ban? Well, one thing is for certain, this issue isn't going away. The debate has been raging for decades, and the evidence that animals suffer in the live export trade has only mounted. So to not ban live export outright is just kicking the can down the road. Time to move on to fisheries. Earlier this year, conservation activists kicked up a stink when the government once again delayed the introduction of cameras to fishing vessels. They were meant to do this years ago as a measure to ensure fishing vessels were complying with the law. As well as concerns about boats illegally dumping fish, a number of New Zealand's sea mammals and birds are threatened species. Cameras can't stop the bycatch of dolphins, birds or sea lions, but conservationists believe they will lead to increased reporting of bycatch. It could also be a way to check required mitigation methods are being used. Since cameras on boats were first proposed by the national-led government, the rollout date has shifted several times from the original date of October 2018. The new date is now October 2021. Back in June, Fisheries Minister Stuart Nash placed the blame of the delay on a lack of technology, which he said wasn't available to proceed with the rollout. Many commentators started pointing the finger at New Zealand First, who has strong ties with the fishing industry. A recorded conversation also emerged of Stuart Nash speculating how he might persuade New Zealand First to get on board so to speak. He quickly distanced himself from that recording, saying his comments were made as a new minister who didn't fully understand New Zealand First's position on the subject. New Zealand First's Shane Jones denied being part of the delay despite his past ties to the fishing industry. There's finally been progress though. Earlier this month, Stuart Nash announced a large cash investment from the government to roll out cameras on fishing vessels. The funding would be dished out by the end of 2021, with the goal of 345 cameras installed by the end of 2024. This would account for about 84% of the inshore fleet. Greenpeace, however, have argued that cameras should be rolled out across New Zealand's full commercial fishing fleet, which is made up of 1,500 registered vessels. You can understand their frustration. I certainly do, because so much of what happens out at sea is out of sight, out of mind. Yesterday, a scoop from Newsroom demonstrated as much. Newsroom's Melanie Reed spoke to Andrew Brew, a journalism student from Christchurch, who met a fisherman who had just come off a vessel after being at sea for a few months. This fisherman said they catch great white sharks all the time, and they fin them for extra money. Shark finning was banned in 2014, a law change that Green MP Gareth Hughes takes great pride in. The fisherman even had a video. He said the industry is rife with shark finning. Everyone's doing it. He also said they won't be off to do it forever because cameras are on their way to fishing vessels. But the boats that don't have cameras will continue to do it. It's a pretty shocking admission and a pretty depressing one at that. These fishermen know what they're doing is wrong and that it's illegal but no one is watching so they can get away with it. We know what will fix it, and the government has known for years now. Cameras on fishing vessels can't come soon enough. October is World Veg Month, 
And this October, SAFE is campaigning to get Kiwis to ditch dairy by signing up to the Dairy Free Challenge. To discuss a swap from dairy to plant-based alternatives, I'm joined by Kylie Dale, SAFE's Eat Kind Program Officer, to discuss the facts and falsehoods around dairy consumption. Welcome, Kylie. Thank you for joining me on the show today. It's great to have you here. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. To begin with, what is what is your background and, and how did it lead you to becoming a vegan? Yeah, sure. So um, I kind of always had a bit of an interest in food and in nutrition as well, like for a long time. And it's what led me to um, study human nutrition, which I did the first year of at Massey University. And um, my second year, I changed that to food science. And but yeah, I still kind of did that because it still has a nutritional element. But um, I got to learn more about the food system as a whole and where our food comes from, from the farm to our plate and all of the many food processes in between. Um, and a, a quite an important element was learning about the impact of our food, the impact our food system has. And so, yeah, learning all of those elements about um, nutrition and food really got me thinking about um, the food that I eat and the fact that I didn't need to eat animal products to be healthy and I could actually improve my health by cutting out animal products. And not, not only that, but I could have a positive impact on the environment while doing so. So, yeah, it kind of just felt like a no-brainer, a win-win to just leave or transition out of um, eating animal products and to go 100% plant-based and yeah, I haven't looked back since then. So, and um, you mentioned that you studied food science, so that was the direction that you ended up going in. A lot of these things that you learned about with and with dairy in particular, and the reasons why you've moved away from from consuming animal products, was that something that you you learnt much about while studying food science, or did that kind of put you on the pathway to to, to then go and do your own learning, so to speak? Yeah, a bit of both. So, I definitely. Um, it kind of triggered triggered that uh, initial kind of interest in plant-based food, learning about how the, the different ways that the different impacts food has within our bodies and the different nutrients we need in our bodies to stay healthy and the fact that we could get that all from plants. But, um, yeah, dairy was definitely a big element when we looked at the food system just because I guess that's a really big part of New Zealand's food production, dairy. Um, and actually there's one kind of a lecture that um, springs to mind um, where we, we were presented with a, a table that um, compared the nutri- nutritional profile of the milks from different mammals. And it looked at the, t- the proportions of, of fats and proteins and how they differed across the different mammals. And that really hit home with me. Um, it showed me how inappropriate cow's milk is for humans. You know, the, the fact that a cow's milk is specifically designed by nature to, to enable her calf to, to gain, I think they, their birth weight is 50 kg, but they gain, they go up to about 200 kg in their first 10 months of life. And that's what her, that cow's milk is designed to do. Um, and that's why the, the, the proteins and fats are so different in the, their levels when compared to human milk. Um, and of course, we don't go anywhere near that rate or to that size. So it's it's not really any surprise that we're actually finding that dairy consumption relates to so many health issues. 
Were you sitting there, because you studied at Lincoln University, right? Yes. So, like, those of us who live in Christchurch should be well aware, but for those that don't, Lincoln University, it's very much an agriculture-type university. They, um, the the students are going there generally are going in with an agriculture focus. Was it just you? Was anyone else sitting around the classroom going, goodness me, this is ridiculous. Why are we consuming this stuff? Um, Or were you kind of, did you kind of feel like that you were an upside-down world and you were the only one who was kind of imagining this? Yeah, I hope to think that I wasn't the only one thinking about it because a lot of uh, everyone at um, Lincoln Uni at the time, we all had to study um, a sustainable paper as well um, related to food. So I think and that, that was really important um, in terms of me learning out the environmental impact of our food and one of the huge reasons co- combined with the health factor that I decided to, yeah, to be plant-based and make that my career path. So I I really do hope that I wasn't the only one to to think about that. And I I actually do think that um, agriculture sector are aware that this is a growing industry and that it needs to be included in, um, in what we're studying as well. Dairy is, it's heavily marketed in New Zealand and around the world as, as a health food. Is there any truth to that? So I can say with full confidence that, Drinking milk and consuming dairy products is doing more harm for our health than that it is doing good. Um, milk and dairy foods are a main source of saturated fats in the kiwi diet. And along with saturated fats, dairy is high in cholesterol. Um, well, that's okay for a rapidly growing calf for its first 10 months of life before it would naturally wean off milk. Um, diets that are high in saturated fats and cholesterol, increase our risk of um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, which um, remains the biggest, the single biggest killer um, of Kiwis, which, yeah, um, I think it's every 90 minutes a Kiwi dies from heart disease, which is terrifying. And, yeah, this is one of the main sources of food that, that provides saturated fats and cholesterol that, make that happen. Um, yeah, and a lot of people, um, there's a lot of speculation around kind of other things that um, dairy um, includes as well. So hormones is something that I hear crop up a lot, you know. Um, I think in the States that's something that is added to uh, cow's milk or um, added to the actual cow that remains in the milk, but um, that's not something that happens in New Zealand. But um, naturally occurring hormones do exist in cow's milk as well and therefore in dairy products. So, for example, um, estrogen and um, progesterone, is progesterone as well and um, certain proteins found in milk actually cause our bodies to boost the production of a hormone called insulin-like growth factor um, or IGF-1. And there's a whole bunch of growing research that links that hormone um, in our system to increased risk of things like breast cancer and prostate cancer. So, yeah, it's not just the saturated fat and cholesterol, unfortunately. A lot of people might be listening and thinking, gosh, if I can't drink dairy, then where will I get all these nutrients from that I should be getting? Because... You know, I've been raised to believe that dairy is a health food. It's full of calcium and all these things that are important for bones and so on and so forth. What would you say to those people? Yeah, I would say um, 
I don't blame you for thinking that. I thought that too. I mean, I think we've all grown up to be told or led to believe that we need milk for strong bones and we need milk to be healthy. And while that's really clever marketing, <laughs> um, unfortunately it's not actually backed by science. I would say don't worry because um, any of the be- beneficial nutrients in cow's milk isn't unique to milk, um, to cow's milk. It's, um, it's nutrients that we can obtain from far healthiest sources. So from ca- like calcium that you mentioned, um, so for strong bones, we don't need milk, we need calcium. And we can get calcium from foods like leafy green vegetables, like bok choy, kale, broccoli, tofu, tempeh, tahini, almonds. Um, even the plant milks in our supermarkets, most of them will be fortified with calcium. And the best thing about getting our, um, our calcium from plant foods like that, like um, whole-based plant foods, is that they also contain other nutrients that are really good for our bones like magnesium and potassium and vitamin K. So, um, yeah, you're getting added benefits when you get it from plant foods. And I guess, yeah, the other point is that plant foods, they don't have the saturated fats and cholesterol either. I didn't give you this question before, but it's just occurred to me. You run ultra marathons. You're a very good athlete. What would you say to other athletes who are perhaps considering something like this? Yeah, well, you raise a really good point because I think, especially in New Zealand, a lot of the dairy marketing um, kind of is a little bit targeted at athletes. You know, we have these kind of um, well-known athletes promoting um, milk or yogurt or whatever, um, and that it's a really good, you know, post-workout thing to consume. Um, and in fact, that's kind of the the opposite of what we should be having you know, after workout. So, for example, if I have a really hard work or if I go for a long run, um, I make sure to have some protein afterwards because protein um, is really good for repairing our muscles and um, getting us ready to do our next workout or um, to recover from that. So while protein is good and protein is in milk, um, protein from plants is better because dairy actually acts as an inflammatory. So it inhibits both our performance when we are um, going out and running or doing whatever workout we're doing. And it, that inflammatory um, response is also hindering our recovery. So protein's good after a workout, but dairy isn't great after a workout. We need something that will you know, refuel us and um, give us that nutrient hit again. And, and the, the classic sort of protein powder is whey protein either, which is a, pro, a, a byproduct of dairy. And it's crazy to think that, you know, people were drinking this stuff uh, for the protein and are in their recovery phase. But as you say, it's it's causing inflammation. Yeah, that's right. So that's, it's kind of just doing um, the opposite of what of the effect you'd want it to have. So, like, my, my favourite thing to have would be, like, overnight oats, and I'd put it with some, some coconut yogurt, some chia seeds, um, top it with some nut butter and some fruit, and, you know, that's getting protein hit um, and a whole bunch of other antioxidants and... Um, minerals and vitamins that will actually yeah, benefit me after a, a hard workout. So it, it's World Veg Month in October. Safe is encouraging people to take up the dairy-free challenge. What would you say to those people who are considering it, and what can they expect? I would say um, get ready to feel amazing, <laughs> um, and yeah, definitely just just sign up to the dairy-free challenge. It's free and it's NZ specific, so. 
it means it's a great chance for you to learn about how easy it is to actually switch away from dairy. Um, and I'd actually say it's probably the most significant change you can make to your diet. Um, it's it's something that's pretty small, but I think you'll you'll still notice a difference and, um, and feel great after it. Um, and yeah, to give a bit of context to the actual challenge, so what it is is a um, an email series where throughout the course of six weeks we'll provide you with insightful tips and tricks and recipes and a bunch of information, basically all you'll need to start um, giving dairy for eating a try. You have been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe the Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, ka kite anō.